Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of John? We're going to be studying verses 17. And the kids are dismissed. I'm sorry if we didn't get that out. I thought, wow, the room is just getting more full. I thought the kids were already, had already been dismissed. As they're going, always, let's always be mindful to be praying for the precious people who are ministering the gospel to our kids Sunday after Sunday. Amen. Um, MacArthur had, uh, one time I was at a conference and he was talking about, and he said, he said, you know what, give your best people to children's ministry. And uh, we believe that the Lord has given us precious, precious people to work with our kids. So Gospel of John, chapter 19, uh, we're going to study verses 17 through 27 this morning. So a little bit of background there. I want to share some thoughts I've had since last Sunday's sermon. Uh, in some ways, I think the sermon could have left us thinking something that I just never intended, but I think I just was too close to. Have you ever been to a church service where you were left feeling like you were more aware of your sin than you were the Savior? And I think that's what I maybe would kind of, was kind of too close to last week. Uh, one of the reasons I feel that way is that I don't think I did a very good job capturing the main point of the text. So I'm sharing this with you. And if you're visiting, just to give you an idea, we, you know, we, we seek to teach the Bible expositorily. And we're really working hard to try to make the main point of the sermon the main point of the text. But uh, I was, it was a well-intended main point, but I... I think I was so affected by my own desire to apply the text to our hearts. Sometimes I think pastors, preachers can do that. We jump to application too quickly and we make it more all about you and all about what you have to do. And we're not making it enough about what he does for us. And I think that's what, what uh, the issue was for me last week. Um, um, I was so affected about how it wasn't just the Jewish leaders who were crying out for Christ to be crucified. Do you remember that point? That they were crying out, crucify him, eliminate him, away with him. And in reality, it wasn't just them, was it? Every act of sin is in itself a form of wanting to do away with Jesus in favor of our will being done in our kingdom coming. I think that's what sin is. And I think sometimes we just look at sin a little too politely after we've become Christians. A little, uh, not, we're not taking it serious enough. Um, we want our will to be done and our kingdom to come. Kind of picture yourself, the last, the last sin you committed. What were you wanting so much that you are willing to shove Jesus out of the way to get. I think that's what the text was. There was an application of that for us in the text. For example, you know, when Jan and I, you know, we tease about this here. You know, Jan and I don't fight. We just have intense fellowship. That's the old line that we, you know. Um, but so often when we're dialoguing about something and, and sinful anger or impatience begins to rule my heart, it's just amazing how it's almost like I could create this scenario where I'm, where I'm dealing with this issue with Jan and just looking at Jesus and saying, hey, this is between me and my wife, but out. 
I think it's just easy to do that. When I sin against her, I think that's, that's what I'm doing. I want to win so badly that I'm willing to sin against Jesus primarily and Jan secondarily. I think that's where I miss it a lot of times too. I think it's, my sin is just all about people rather than first and foremost it being against him. We need to remember that the sins we commit after we're saved are no less sinful than the sins we committed before we were saved. Our sins after salvation are still a statement that at that moment, it's not like we lost our salvation or anything, but a a sin after salvation at that moment is saying that we really don't want Jesus and his will at that moment of temptation. We want our will to be done. That's what we had in common with those who were crying out for his crucifixion. They wanted their will to be done and their kingdom to come. And to do that, they have to eliminate Jesus from it. I mean, isn't that the the issue with our world right now? So many people would say, I believe in God. But they're living a lifestyle that has to create this other reality. It's not a biblical reality. They have to create this other reality to make sin more acceptable in their lives which means they're pushing Jesus out of the way to have their kingdom come. I I think that if we'll see our sins as Christians as being as ugly as that cry for crucify him, I think we're going to be less likely to allow ourselves to have a category called acceptable sins. In other words, a way of thinking of sin that just justifies it rather than mortifies it. Everyone has this problem, right? That's a, so here's how we kind of come across that. Everyone has this problem, so it must not, it's bad, but it must, be, it must not be that bad if everybody's doing it. Or seeing bitterness and unforgiveness as bad, but not that bad compared to the pain that someone else caused me. So what do we need to do? We need to confess and repent. And I think that's what I hit pretty hard last week. And we do need to confess and repent. Not apologizing for that at all. But why do we do it? Why do we do it? Is it to self-atone? Or because a great atonement was made for the sin we already committed? That's what I think. I, I just didn't do a good enough job to last week with you. Um, because even though our cries, our sins cry out for Christ to be crucified, I think Christ would look at us with his eyes of love. And I think he would say, I know that right now you want me out of the way. I know that right now you want me crucified. You want nothing to do with my kingdom and everything to do with yours. I knew you were going to be this way. And I already planned to be crucified for you. That's where I wish I would have left you last week. That's where I wish I would have left you. Knowing that kind of kindness, knowing that kind of mercy and that kind of work of Jesus upon the cross, that's what should motivate our confession and repentance. Amen. In that way, we leave the text focused mainly on what Jesus has done for us and not mainly on what we have to go do for him. The text certainly highlighted the ugliness of sin, but even more, that text highlighted the beauty of Christ's mercy and of his love for those who have so horribly sinned against him. I put this little blurb in your notes. I came across this this week. 
I think this communicates that well. In a sermon entitled, Grace to the Chief of Sinners, Benjamin Grosvenor Grosvenor, uh, lived in 1676 to 758. He presented a scenario in which the risen Jesus, on the basis of all he had already done on the cross and all that he had already taught them by his word, addressed his apostles as they were about to take the gospel out into the world. In this scenario, so remember, it's just a scenario. It's kind of an illustration. In this scenario, Pastor Grosvenor imagined that Jesus would want the apostles, what, what Jesus would want the apostles to say if they came across the man who shoved his spear, typo there, <laughs> I'm sorry, shoved his spear into Jesus' side when he was on the cross. He imagined that the Lord would tell them to say something like this in order to reveal his heart of love and, and forgiveness for the undeserving. So this, listen to this. If you meet that poor wretch who thrust the spear into my side, tell him there's another way, a better way to come at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and mourn, I will, <laughs> I will cherish him in that very heart he has wounded. He shall find the blood he shed an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me, he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew my blood forth. Wow. Hallelujah. What a savior, you guys. So I don't want to make that mistake again today. Um, I'm going to read the text and then I'm going to share the main point that I think the text is telling us today. So as we turn to God's word, let's, let's be thankful that he speaks to us in his word. Let's be so thankful that he's not sitting up there silent, that he communicates who he is and what he's done for us and his plans for us and future he's ordained for us and how he's totally in control of all things. And he does that through his holy and inspired and authoritative and inerrant word. So let's begin. John chapter 19. Verse 17. Guys, don't get old because the print was already small, but it seems to be getting smaller to me. Um, so verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There, were crucif there they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus between them. Pilate, who wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, well, many of the Jews read this inscription, 
for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven from one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, let's count for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Heavenly Father, um, would you just fix our eyes on Jesus again this morning? All the other things that are demanding our attention, please help us to put them away. We, don't wanna, we, we want to eliminate them from our vision, not you. Help us to see the high price you paid for for us to be forgiven, to be declared righteous, to be adopted as sons and daughters of a perfect and loving Heavenly Father. The mission that you would give us. Oh, please. We just want to see Jesus afresh today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the main point would be this. And this is in your notes. Christ sacrificed his life upon the cross so that we could gain eternal life because of the cross. I think that's there. I think that's, that's there. First point this morning is Christ sacrificed his reputation as the earthly king of one nation so we out here in West Texas, as well as all the rest around the world, could know him as the saving king of all nations. So he's willing to sacrifice his reputation as the earthly king of one nation so we around the world, people from all people groups, could know him as the saving king of all nations. Let's see how that, how that unpacks in this, in this section of the text. So remember where we've been, Christ has been mocked and rejected, not merely rejected as a mere person, he was rejected as God himself. This wasn't just a good dude they were pushing out of the way. They were rejecting God himself. And I would invite you, if you're here evaluating the claims of Christ, I think you've got to come to that point too. This is not just a, a mere prophet or teacher. This is the son of God. This is the second person of the Godhead. And to reject him is rejecting God himself. It's a serious thing. And they're not merely rejecting him as an individual alone, but they're rejecting him in favor of a murderer. I, I just, I got, I got repulsed afresh, even this morning as I was just fine-tuning and praying over the notes and things. And then I just thought, 
the junk that I do, the sins I commit, I'm, I'm choosing a bunch of junk in favor of the Savior? My sins are just as gross as this. But they're rejecting God the Son in favor of a murderer being set free and the innocent one condemned. Remember how we, we, we thought, wow, you totally see the gospel in that, that illustration. He was shamed. So listen, for those of you who have had some of these horrors in your life, Jesus too was shamed verbally and physically. Jesus was abused verbally and physically. Jesus was traumatized verbally and physically, and he had done nothing to deserve any of it. He was flogged mercilessly, and now he had to drag those strips of his flesh that we talked about, that the cat of nine tails would have ripped off of his back, exposing his ribs and possibly some of his internal organs. Those strips of flesh are hanging down off of his back as he's now being compelled to carry on his bloodied, bruised, and beaten, and innocent back the cross beam of the cross he was about to die on. They take him to the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. The Latin for skull is Calvary. So when you hear that, that's where that's coming from. It's not right here in the text, but in Latin, the word is Calvary. The phrase, he went out, points back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So I put in, in these last few weeks, I'm putting a ton of scripture in your notes because I just want you to see the redemptive storyline from Genesis to Revelation. I'm wanting you to see that the Bible, those 66 books, is all one story about one Savior who loves you to, to death, you could say. So it's this, the, he, the, the phrase, he, he went out of the city, we would, as, as people who don't know our Bibles or we don't know that culture and we don't know Old Testament history, we wouldn't realize it's pointing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the sin offering was taken outside the camp. It was too shameful. It was too filthy to be inside the camp. So you'll see some references for this. Leviticus 16, 27, it's in your notes. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place. Well, Jesus certainly was already shedding blood within the city. Shall now be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. The writer to the Hebrews talks about Jesus being the better fulfillment of all of that. Chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp to go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This, this thought of fire, the, these, these, these lambs and bulls and goats, their skins being burned up to smithereens, you could say. There was a hot fire and they would burn them until there was nothing left of them. I think there's some imagery there. For those of you who wonder, are my sins really forgiven? A, a, a greater fire than the fire of, that was sparked with a, a match. Uh, to, to burn up animal skins, a greater fire fell upon Jesus. It was the fire of God's wrath completely eating up and satisfying all of the punishment our sins deserved. 
And so in a sense, Jesus is burned up in the outpouring of God's righteous wrath for our sins. John wants us to see that as dark and out of control that this scene looks like to our eyes, Satan and evil men are not in control here. So again, again, if you're newer to your Bible, we, it's just too easy to read the, the New Testament, to read the Gospels and with sympathy, appropriate sympathy for this poor man who had to suffer so many things. He was suffering so many things while he was in complete control of it all. You need to know that because some of you are suffering some things that you have major questions about. And it doesn't look to your eyes and your feelings, it doesn't look like God's in control. Isn't it helpful to know that on the worst day of Christ's life, when evil seemed out of control, God was totally in control. And he was in control then, he's in control for you too. I think it's important for us to know those things. God is working out his sovereign plan to save sinners like me, like us, and it's highlighting Jesus' obedience to the plan. It makes me think back to Genesis when God gave the command to Abraham to sacrifice his only son. In that narrative, do you remember what happened? We're told that Abraham put the wood of the sacrifice on the back of his son Isaac, who was submitting to his father's plan. The imagery, right? See how the Bible is always telling the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation. Verse 18, and there they crucified him, the innocent son of God, condemned to die to pay the price for the guilty. I want to throw a phrase out to you. Those of you who have been a Christian for a while, you've heard this is not a new phrase. I certainly didn't invent it. I don't invent really anything. Anything I try to create is terrible. So I repeat other people's really great stuff. Um, you could narrow down the gospel to say this. The gospel is salvation through substitution. That's an easy thing to remember, isn't it? Salvation through substitution. We didn't have to pay the price for our sins. Christ substituted himself in our place on the cross. The innocent one is being punished in between two guilty men who deserved everything that was coming to them. I really am trying to stay focused on what, what did the Holy Spirit want us to glean out of John? The, the other three Gospels speak more about this, and we're very familiar with one of the stories about the one, the one thief on the cross was reviling Jesus at the beginning until the Holy Spirit regenerated him. And he began to feel sorrow for his sin and accepting that he was there because of what he, he deserved to be there, but not Jesus. And you remember what he said? Would you remember me? He's now seeing him as a saving king. And his death is actually the proof of his kingliness, not, not uh, the denial of it. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Whenever you see that, that three-cross picture, please know that the person in the center was always to be regarded as the worst sinner the worst lawbreaker, the worst blasphemer of all. People were to see him as cursed by God, far worse than any murderer or robber or insurrectionist. In dying between the two thieves, Jesus is once again fulfilling scripture. Again, I want you to see he's in control. 
He's suffering greatly for what we've done against God and his commands. But he's totally in control in doing it. He's doing it because he loves you. Look at, the, look at your notes. This is from Isaiah 53, 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. I, Alistair Begg, I don't know if any of you have heard any sermons that he's preached. He's really become known for this one little illustration. It's the mercy that Jesus is showing to the worst of sinners, and, and that includes one of those men on the cross. And I'll just make it short, but he said that, that that man that was on the cross who asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, he, the picture was of this man coming to the pearly gates or whatever you want to call it, to the entrance of heaven. And, and he's asked that question, why should I let you in? And that man said, the man in the middle said I could come. And isn't that what's true of everyone? Didn't he say that for, about you? He said it about me. I, I could never have stood. I don't even have a chance getting close to the gate. None of us do, except for what the man in the middle did and said for us. Verse 19, all that John has said now, he's not just really pointing us to the physical agony and torment Jesus experienced there. Instead, the Holy Spirit's focusing our attention now on an inscription written by Pilate that would be attached to the cross that Jesus died on, which is, which is said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What would happen is that as he's carrying the cross, um, a man would walk ahead of him carrying the, this sign, this, and, he's, and it's very bold, and it's easy to read, and it's stating the charges against the condemned. And it's a solemn warning to others not to commit the same crime, as well as heaping more shame on the, on the, on the, on the criminal. Um, the, the, the card, the sign, placard, whatever you want to call it, would then be attached to the cross for all to read. Have you ever seen, I mean, this, it, the, 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 the most minimal way to talk about it, have you ever seen these memes and there's, there's a dog and he's, he's got a sign around his neck and it says, I ate my owner's slippers. Well, that's pretty minimal. But have you ever seen, have you ever heard of parents that have done this? They've disobeyed mom or dad. Parents wrote a sign of how they disobeyed them and thought, oh, here's the answer. I'm going to shame my child as much as I possibly can. And literally goes and the parent sits in a car, puts the, the, the kid on a busy street corner with the sign hung around his neck for everyone to see what he did. Do you know that actually there have been some courts uh, that judges uh, that have tried doing the very same thing, putting convicted criminals on street corners, of course the police are right there as well, with the sign hung around their neck of what their crime was. Jesus was innocent, and yet he is being marked as a guilty criminal. Another argument breaks out between Pilate and the Jews. They want nothing to do with Jesus, even being hinted at that, that he was their king. And they're so passionately committed to him for, to die on the cross so that he would be cursed by God. 
so that people would never even think twice about turning to him as a king, as a redeemer, as a messiah. So they wanted to be rewritten to say he claimed to be their king. Not only were the Jews blind to Jesus being their king, even worse, they were completely rejecting him as their God. So here comes more scripture to bear on us. The Gospel of John, if you remember, if you were here when we first started the book, already told us that this would happen in the very first chapter of John when it said he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. Do not say he's our king. Just fulfilling passage after passage of scripture and proof after proof that God is sovereignly in control. Pilate's doing all he could to declare his own personal victory, kind of a gotcha moment over the Jews in that battle of manipulation that they were doing with each other. Uh, he, was, he wanted to shame them for killing their king. And, and then at the same time, appeasing them with a crucifixion instead of a stoning. He also wanted, he thought this would probably look good to Caesar. Look how I take down those who would rival Caesar. And hoping to put fear into any other insurrectionist who would try to use any sort of military force to bring freedom to the Jews. And so for time eternal, according to the word of God, Jesus has been memorialized as the king of the Jews. John is the only gospel writer that relates this incident in this way. The inscription was written in three different languages. Guys, I, I want to stop. I just, it's so important that when, when we come to texts like this, I, I just, the way, I say things so silly, but the way I think this is supposed to be understood is your name is in this passage. Your name is in this passage. Why was it written in three different languages? Because he was more than just the king of the Jews, wasn't he? Do you see that? There's an old song, kind of a country western Christian song that said, when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. I believe that. It was an internal, international inscription recorded in Aramaic and then Latin and Greek. Aramaic was the language of the region and of the Jews. Latin dominated the language of law and governmental authority and Roman rule. Greek was the common language of the entire Roman Empire. And it was written so that people from all nations could know that Jesus was a king. They didn't get it very right about just the kind of king and, and the scope of his rule. But there is some truth to it. Jesus was the king of the Jews, but he was so much more of that than that. But though Caesar had this written, oh, I'm sorry, though Pilate had this written, he was only being used by God to fulfill the plan of salvation. God was reinforcing that King Jesus was first sent to the Jews and they received him not. God was reinforcing that in spite of their rejection and Christ's crucifixion, Jesus was nevertheless the Savior King. Not only for repentant Jews, but the Savior King of people who would trust him from every nation on earth. Have you trusted him as your Savior King? Have you trusted him as your savior king? We're trusting a lot of other stuff that don't deserve near the credit that you're giving it. Me too. Man, I trust in money. I, I, I trust in people. I, I mean, the kind of trust where you put your entire weight 
on them or on that thing or on that dollar. And then we're surprised when it, when it can't bear our weight. Have you trusted the king of kings to bear up your soul, to give you new life? Oh, I hope you trust him today. Jesus was more than willing to sacrifice his earthly reputation as the king of one nation so that he could come to, so, so that all from all nations could believe in him as the saving king they need too, and not just the Jews. The Jews need it, he did it for the Jews, but he did it, that's where, for us right here in Midland, Texas, where he was on the cross. You were on his mind. Isn't it interesting? King Jesus doesn't need to be seen as having an earthly reign. He's, he's, there's no ego trip kind of stuff going on with Jesus. Jesus is the king regardless of whether you regard him as the king or not. He's reigning over every man and molecule whether he's recognized or not. He's been appointed the king forever from eternity past to eternity future. He reigned as a shivering baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough as his first crib. He reigned over Satan and his temptations, even when 40 days of fasting weakened him physically. He reigned when he had no place to lay his head. He reigned when he was riding on a donkey instead of a war horse. He reigned with his body ripped open when flogged. He reigned with a crown of thorns pushed down upon his skull. He reigned when his beard was ripped from his face. He reigned when his head was beaten in by the Roman soldiers' mocking rods. He reigned even as he died our death as our substitute upon the cross. And he continued to reign even though his dead body was sealed in a tomb for three days. Jesus reigns. Christ reigns and rules regardless of how it appears to our eyes. Pandemics, self-exalting governmental leaders, cancer, wars or rumors of wars, loss of jobs, death of loved ones, betrayal by friends, failure of spiritual leaders, he still reigns. Jesus was willing to sacrifice his earthly reputation as the king of just one nation in order to be seen as the ruling and reigning savior king of people from all nations. I love this thought. The place of death, Golgotha or Calvary. Guys, for us, it would forever be known not, not for the thousands of people who died on crosses there. For us, it would be eternally known for the millions of people from all nations who came to believe that there's new life and forgiveness in Jesus because he died on that hill far, far away. Oh, he sacrificed it all as an expression of being sovereign over all. He was obedient to God's plan. He was fulfilling God's plan to bring salvation through substitution. And if he was reigning when things seemed so totally out of control then, where do you need to trust that he's in control over the things you're going through today? How did the, the Holy Spirit want to apply that to your heart this morning? What are you waking up at three in the morning and not being able to go back to sleep about? Did you know he's reigning at three in the morning? 
I, I, that's, I, listen, I'm not good with three in the morning. I have more in common with an atheist, it seems, at three in the morning than with, with a Christian and a pastor. Sure seems like other things are bigger sometimes, doesn't it? But he's reigning, and this is our proof. This is our proof. Christ also sacrificed his earthly robe so that we could receive a robe of righteousness. We're going to see this in uh, verses 23 and 24. John directs our attention from the inscription now to a tunic. Did you notice how much time it gave to the tunic? So th those kind of things. Anytime you kind of go, <laughs> what's the deal here? Dig in. Uh, listen, don't, don't go, oh, I don't get it. I mean, I do that too often. It's really an invitation of the Holy Spirit to say, oh, dig in. There's treasure here. Come on. Yeah, I know you don't get it yet. Get help. Yeah, I mean, let's dig in. So let's, let's dig in. Let's find out. What's the deal with the tunic? Well, John, John directs our attention from the, from the inscription on the sign to the tunic that was laying on the ground underneath the cross of Jesus. So it's important to understand, it's another kind of gross thing here, that in order to enhance the shame hurled upon those being crucified for their crimes, did you know they were stripped naked? They hung there naked and exposed for all the world to see. Just every Jesus show, every Jesus movie thing that you see, you're not, either they don't show that at all, or they, they try to dignify, they try to give a little bit dig. Well, come on, guys, we've got to give him some dignity. He had all dignity was stripped of him at the cross. He was being ashamed as deeply as possible. The executioners were entitled to the last earthly possession of the victim who was executed. And so these four soldiers were able to divide Jesus' belt and sandals and even his outer garment, which would have been likely the product of having several pieces of cloth sewn together. And, and so it'd be easy to tear or rip at the seams and the cloths distributed among them kind of equally to maybe get a little trophy to show off. Hey, you know what this is? I mean, think about just church history, all the relics and things that religions have done. Can you picture these guys just saying, you know what this is? This is a piece of the, uh, the robe from the king of the Jews. How'd you get that? Oh, man, you got to be at the right place at the right time. A little trophy to show off. But when they came to the inner garment, so that's what's being talked about here, the inner garment, they noticed that it was far more than just a piece of clothing that would normally be worn next to the skin. This garment had no seams. And it was woven from the top to the bottom. They recognized only a priest would wear that kind of garment. Could the man they just hung on the cross be both a king and a priest? What would you say? Yes, yes. yeah. And that's one of the joys of what he did for us there. Wow, well, what should we do with a one-of-a-kind garment like this? The garment of a priest and a king. They decide to gamble for it. <laughs> of course. What would you do? I, guys, I, guys, I find so much in common with all of the big sinners of the Bible. I just find, I mean, yeah. Hey, what can I, let's make some money. Maybe I can win it and sell it for a bigger, oh, anyway. Little did they know that God was once again using sinful men to fulfill his saving plan. So again, I just, I just want to look, I just, look in your eyes and try to say, 
probably everybody in here has someone that you just feel is getting it over on you. You're not, you could honestly say, I have not done anything wrong and I just cannot believe the way I'm being treated, the way I'm being spoken to, the way I'm being ignored on the job. My efforts are not being recognized. Well, little did these soldiers know that God was once again using sinful men to accomplish his saving plans. Don't you think God can use sinful men in your life to actually to advance the purposes for your life, not to quench them and not to fail you? Here's the, the psalm. So here's fulfillment of scripture again. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. Did you know that some of the theologians and historians said that Jesus wasn't necessarily, the, the, the criminals weren't necessarily hung that high up on the cross. And sometimes there could be dogs that would be jumping up for some meat. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. God's totally in control, isn't he? The soldiers wouldn't be the ones to understand this, but John wrote these things. Why? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So what is he saying to us? Well, the symbolism of the seamless tunic tells us that Jesus was more than just a mere earthly priest, but that he is our great high priest who doesn't offer repeated sacrifices for sin, does he? But he gives up his own life to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God. So he's not, the priest offers the blood of others. Jesus, our high priest, offers his own blood as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Jesus fulfilled the role of both the Passover Lamb and the great high priest. And he fulfilled everything expected from the high priest. Intercession for God's people. That's what Jesus did. A one-time sacrifice for all sin. That's what Jesus did. Making reconciliation through his blood. Providing cleansing and forgiveness and righteousness. As being done once and for all through his death. That's why that tunic was important. He sacrificed his earthly robes so that we could receive his robe of righteousness. So again, heart-to-heart -heart moment. How many times? So pick any sin you committed this week. Pick any failure. Pick any regret that you've had this week. How many times did you fight that thought with, well, thank God I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Or... Was it more, I'm such an IDIOT. <laughs> we have really smart kids in the show. I don't know why I spelled it, but. Um, <laughs> actually, Brad, you should have said, you spelled it wrong. I mean, you know, that probably would have been more like me. Um, I think it must grieve God, guys. Uh, maybe you can ask Jan. This is, this is a, 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 a dark hole I go down into too often. I'm just so aware of my sin and failure. I'm so, I, I, I think nobody should accept me. Um, I should, I should, I'm the least. I'm the worst. Yes, I should go eat worms. There was some song like that. 
How many times have you thought, because of his death on the cross for my sins, he took my robe of sinful filthiness upon himself. And he gives me his robe of perfect righteousness as though I've never sinned. As though I've never sinned. As though I've never wanted to sin. As as though I've always obeyed, not even just never sinned. That just brings me back up to kind of zero. But I have to have a positive righteousness to go to heaven. And he treats me like I've always obeyed. And he's counting all of his obedience to me like I did it. We need to remember that, don't we? That will conquer regret. That will conquer the mistakes we make. That will conquer the still the sins we commit day to day. Remembering what he did by sacrificing that earthly robe to give us a robe of righteousness in his name. And the last part is this. Jesus sacrificed his earthly family so that we could be adopted into his heavenly family. And I think that this is interesting because of our, you know, we just started our small group ministry, our discipleship group ministry for the fall. And I I think this is just so important for everybody in here. Jesus has sacrificed his earthly reputation as a king of one nation, his earthly possessions and his priestly robe. But now he will sacrifice his earthly relationships, even with his mother and the disciple that, most loved God. It says the disciple that Jesus loved, which I think means this is the one who most loved God and others the way Jesus did. (laughs) Remember what John's nickname was early on in his salvation? The son of thunder. He's one of the sons of thunder. That gives me a lot of hope. (laughs) Because if God can transform some Son of Thunder. Remember what he, the, the Samaritans, I think, had rejected. Their, they didn't want Christ to come into their community. And he comes back and he's telling Jesus about it. And he says, hey, you want us to call down fire on them? But now he's being called the disciple who loved like Jesus. May that be all of us, right? Jesus is sacrificing his relationships with his earthly family in order to welcome people from all nations to be adopted into his father's family through his death on the cross for our sins. So standing at the cross, we see four men, one man, four women, one man. Guys, can you imagine the courage this took? I don't don't think it was just courage, though. I think the heart of real Christian courage is love. I don't think it's courage just because we're West Texans. I think it's courage because love is compelling us. And if, and if we need to do something courageous, sacrificial, it's because love is, is the heartbeat of our lives. And I think that's what was happening here. Everyone else had abandoned Jesus. They could be killed by being his followers and being so close to the cross that Jesus could speak to them. He speaks from the cross for the first time here in the Gospel of John. It's, it's in that, that section of the Gospels, the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. And he speaks to Mary and John. One thing we can take away from this is how Jesus cared for his people on his worst day, on his worst day of being our sin bearer. He didn't abandon us when he was on the cross. So he will not abandon you when you're in a crisis. I'll say that again. He didn't abandon you on his worst day on the cross, bearing your sins. He stayed there, didn't he? They taunted him. Come off the cross. 
He said, I love God and I love you too much to do it. I'm not going to do that. If he stayed on the cross on your worst day, on his worst day, he's going to stay with you on your worst day. He's going to be with you in the, when you've sinned your worst sin. Jesus paid it all. He knew the prophecy given by Simeon after he was, after he was born that because of him and his mission, a sword would one day pierce Mary's heart. Ladies, can you just imagine this? I mean, you've raised this. You, you birthed this child. You've seen him do no wrong. He was most certainly caring for her heart, but I think there's more going on here than that. He says, woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, behold your mother. First, Jesus, I think, is reorienting their relationship between himself and those who follow him. So Jesus calls her woman, not as any sort of sign of disrespect or impatience. It's a very respectful term. But he needed Mary to understand that she was no longer to see him primarily as her son, but primarily as her savior. And the same with John. John was not to primarily see him as his rabbinic leader, but as his righteous Lord. Our relationship with Christ must dominate and be at the center of how we view anything or anyone else, including how we see our relationships with others. He tells Mary because of his death on the cross for her and for John, she's to see John differently because she sees him now differently, Savior and Lord. She's to see John differently. John's to see her differently. The, the reference there is as a son to a, a mother and a mother to a son. But he, it's, it's just, it's more than that. It's communicating that Christians have new life in Christ and we have a common new life in Christ. Brother and sister are not just religious terms for Southern folks to use. The Spirit raised them from the dead and gave them a new and common life in Christ. And when the Spirit regenerates us, He sheds abroad the love of Jesus into our hearts. The relationships between believers are bound together in Christ and empowered by the Spirit even more closely together than our blood relationships. And these relationships in God's family with Him as, as our Father last forever. The Bible regularly gives us instruction, doesn't it? Correction and grace for earthly relationships, starting with marriage and parenting. But Jesus does more than just give us teaching about how to have a better marriage and better behaved kids who don't do drugs and get good grades and get into good colleges. Jesus' vision of marriage and parenting is not based on mere marriage licenses and birth certificates. His family would not emerge from natural birth, but from supernatural birth through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We are a chosen people, a holy race, a nation redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And it's not just doctrine, it's a life experience. The Spirit of Christ has come into our hearts. And if you've trusted and followed Jesus, he's in you too. That has to change the way we see each other, doesn't it? And this family has a common goal. The glory of God being made visible in their progressive growth and godliness together. And their common mission to bring his gospel to all peoples. 
This family would love like he loves and forgive like he forgives and be patient like he is patient. So let's be a little kind of lighthearted kind of just to get a point across here. I think about how having things in common in our world today reorient how we think about people. Okay, you ready? Any Texas A&M Aggity alumni or fans here with us this morning? Any? I knew it. Would you hear? Whoop. If you're visiting today and you're from Michigan, that won't make any sense to you. But that's the, that's the A&M. I would like somebody to explain it to me, but whoop. Sounds like you made a mistake. Like, you know, what is the deal? Um, but isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Okay, how about this? Any Texas Longhorn fans here? Yeah, see, look what's going on there. I wish you could see what I'm seeing. So there's, I never did. Is this Hawaiian or Longhorns? Is this Longhorns? Is that Longhorns? This is Hawaii? Like, like this. Okay. Longhorns, right? And what a win you guys had last night. That was pretty impressive. Longhorns. Hey, how about them Red Raiders? Oh, I know. Guns up. I mean, so, but isn't there something in UNA, A&M people, when I mentioned the Longhorns, you wanted to boo. You, oh, yeah, I just, you mean Longhorns go to this church? I cannot believe it. I thought it was a good church. We love Longhorns. We love Red Raiders. We love Aggies. How about you Aggies fans? How about this? If I told you did you know I'm an Aggie? <laughs> but get ready, because I'm going to totally reorient your vision of me. I'm a New Mexico State Aggie. <laughs> See? Your view of me just totally went, I can't believe we have a pastor who's a fake Aggie. <laughs> you guys, isn't it crazy how we will find such passion in orienting our lives around other people who have a common passion for football. And you look at our passion for each other as believers, and we're griping and complaining and unforgiving and no patience and not cheering each other on and high-fiving our sanctification. The Lord wants us to do better, doesn't he? Because he gives us grace to do better. They'll know we're Christians by our love. Not just how loving we are, like, oh, they're just a bunch of bushy-gushy people. No, it's a, our love is like Christ's love. That's what makes it unbelievable. Only God could have done that. It's our apologetic. It's, it's how we do evangelism is loving each other. That's, that's one of the ways that God brings out evangelism in us. A church that centers itself on gospel doctrine, and we seek to do that. Guys, if we're not also a church of gospel culture, we will unsay with our lives what we say with our lips. It's being together that changes us. You're not going to grow in grace much if you're just not in regular, grace-motivated, accountable relationships with other believers. Um, it's, it brings out, and yeah, is it a pain? Yes. <laughs> it can be a pain. I'm the biggest pain you've got. Yeah, it can be a pain to hang out with believers. But what is God doing? He's in control. He's saying, hey, listen, I want to kind of show you what's ruling your heart. Your focus is on them. Oh, 
oh boy, I'm using them to bring out something I want to change in you. And I want to use them to help you change. One way we try to provide a context for that is our discipleship groups. Uh, one meets on Sundays. That one, though, I think is full to the brim. The other four meet on Wednesdays. You can find more information about that in our, uh, uh, on our website. Um, if you're not in a group like that, and you may be visiting here for the first time, and, and you, you know this, maybe this wasn't the place for you or whatever, but if it is, we need the fellowship that Jesus paid for us to have. Have you ever thought of it that way? Jesus paid a high price for us to have a community of grace, gospel culture, not just gospel doctrine. And he paid for that to happen. It can happen. It can happen. And I'll just be honest with you, I need it. There's a, cl- a couple of closing examples, and, and we'll, just, we'll just close in prayer. We won't have a closing song. Um, so I've been saved since I was 19. I'm 63, going to be 64. I've been saved by God's grace since uh, I was 19. You know, there was a lot of junk in my family, a lot of abuse, physical, verbal, a bunch of stuff. And it's crazy. After all these years, you know, I've made some progress in forgiveness. But when I think of one of my parents, it's so often that I, I think I go pretty quickly to what they did to me. And, I've, and I'm, that was, I was 19 when I got saved. I'm 64 now. Sounds like I need some help, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like I need some help? I've made some progress in forgiveness, but I think the only way I'm going to really, the, the Lord's going to finish that thing is I'm going to need some help from my brothers and sisters. I, I'm, I, 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 I have, how many years have I proven? I mean, was it, that's insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, thinking that you, that's going to make a difference. You know something else that's really been super that's happening? Is I've been convicted of where I've fallen short as a pastor with people who have left our church. And so I've been starting to reach out to people to say this, because that usually, that, that can involve at times tension, can't it? If you've ever had, I think most of us have had some moments like that where there was just a disagreement and it didn't, it, it just didn't, it was, it kind of got ugly. Emotions, anger, you know, all this. And, and the Lord showed me, I called you to pastor people until they no wanted you to pastor them. Not to pretend them by pulling your heart away from them, even though you preach sermons to them, even though you gave counsel to them. You pulled your heart away from those people. Jesus never does that. And so I've been calling people. And I've been saying, you know, when, when you left Grace Church, I need to apologize because I didn't pastor you till our last handshake goodbye. And I'm so sorry for that. I love you, and will you please forgive me? God's doing some pretty amazing things with that. And I want to tell you, as the best that I can, as one of your elders, I will try never to do that to you. If, there needs to, if you need to go, there's a doctrinal disagreement or something we practice, the way, way we do things or whatever. And, it's just, and even if there was some tension, 
oh, I want to pastor you until you say, you're done pastoring me. And then even beyond that, to keep loving you as a brother in the Lord. Can we take a minute to pray? And to think of, the, of Christ paying this immense sacrifice on the cross so that we out here in West Texas could be a part of the redeemed. And it wasn't just the king of one nation, but the saving king of all nations. Can we just take a minute to be so thankful that we've received his robe of righteousness? And, and where do you need that reminder today? Where do you need God to pull you out of this condemning voice that has been speaking to you? Where, where do you need to be refreshed in his righteousness? And where are you not seeing someone biblically? Is there someone that you are still struggling? If you, it's that person, your first thought of them is not good. It's ugly, it's not redeeming. You really want to just disengage even more from them. What is God wanting to do there? What is he wanting to do with the forgiveness that he gave you, that he's given you grace to forgive them? The bitterness that you have, that God's able to give you a new belief system to believe, oh, they didn't steal what I needed for happiness in life. Jesus is my happiness in life. What are those things that the Holy Spirit wants to work on in us? Let's just take a few minutes to be quiet and invite the work of the Spirit to apply the Scriptures to our hearts this morning. And then I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Mari, would you come and, and be available uh, for anyone who wants to pray this morning? I want to close us with a benediction. If you're visiting today, I'd love to meet you. That would be so cool. If you're visiting today, come have lunch with us. We'd love to have you have lunch with us. Would you stand as I read the benediction from Ephesians chapter 3, which I think really sums up all that we've seen Jesus do for us today. Um, this is what the Spirit gave Paul to write. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Next week, we're going we're gonna to take some time on that, that last statement Jesus makes in John from the cross. It is finished. Be a great Sunday to invite somebody you've been talking with that needs to hear this glorious finished work of the Lord who maybe not know Christ savingly or maybe, maybe they're, they're in a prodigal season. Oh, invite people to come with you next Sunday. You're deployed on mission to serve our Savior King. Amen. God bless you.